Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulton. I'm a professor at the University of Florida, and today we're going to talk about misconduct. And we're going to talk about some ways that it's discovered and reported that are just phenomenal. This is a story that blows me away. And there have been a number of different cases where people I know have uh, identified p- places where uh, data were misrepresented in a figure and, uh, in, and it was turned into the journal and the journal did nothing about it. Or they, when they did tell the authors, the author said, oh, just made a mistake. Um, but these were seemingly attempts to deceive in order to keep something in publication. Uh, in other cases, I know as a reviewer, we've pointed out, this looks like they used the same image twice and then repeated the data or made claims about the data. So this is kind of a rampant problem. Now, one of the heroes in this area, and she is really a hero in this area, is Elizabeth Bick. Uh, Elizabeth, she's uh, currently taking some time off of her academic and industry pursuits in order to dedicate her full time to identifying these instances of misconduct in the scientific literature. So welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth. Hi, Kevin. I'm, I'm really excited to be on your show. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you being here because this is something everybody needs to know about and understand for a lot of different reasons. But uh, can you first you know, tell me a little bit about yourself and maybe your background that brought you to this? Sure. Um, I grew up in the Netherlands and I did a PhD in microbiology. And around 2001, I moved with my husband to the United States. And I worked 15 years at Stanford. We were, uh, I joined the lab of David Relman, and he was just starting to work on the microbiome, which is a very hot topic in, in microbiology right now. It seems that almost every disease is somehow connected to the microbes that live in our body. So it was really exciting to, to join that lab at that time. And uh, while I was working there, I also started to do research in misconduct in my, in my free time, not really related to what I was doing in the lab, but yeah, looking into things like plagiarism and image misconduct. And so let's talk about that because I'm really passionate about that. Well, it's extremely important because if we can't trust the data that are underlying the conclusions papers, then, you know, what do we trust, right? So how do you feel about that? Why is there a need for more surveillance of the literature? Uh, well, science built upon science. I, I use that phrase a lot because it, it really captures what science is. Like every science paper, every science study starts by looking at what other people have published and and have done and found. And then you, as a scientist, you form your own hypothesis or your own additional questions and you you build upon that previous work. So if you cannot trust work that other people have done because of misconduct, because they basically lied about data, 
then the work you are doing as a scientist can be a complete waste. And, you know, you could maybe spend years of your career trying to replicate something that another person has reported. But if that was built upon a lie, then you could never replicate that. And you're wasting your time and, and the funder's money. So I think it's very important that science needs to be reproducible and honest. No, you bring up an excellent point there. I mean, can you imagine being a postdoctoral researcher who's stepping off into their career and uh, looking for an academic position, but they're on a project where you're trying to repeat something really cool that you read in the literature and you can't get it to work. So instead of working 12-hour days, you make it 16-hour days and you work hard. You know what I mean? This is how, this is how we're wired. It must be something something I'm doing wrong because this is the literature and I trust it and I can't get this to repeat. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, this it's really something that I think is not fully taken into consideration that this kind of stuff is a career killer. It it is, and and even if science is honest, it can be very hard to replicate what has been done in another lab. And because if you use a different incubator or slightly different temperature or a different day of the month or whatever. Like, you know, that, that experiments might fail because of unknown reasons sometimes. And it's very hard to replicate work, even if it's honest and well described, but if it's, if it never happened because people report fake data, then it, it becomes even harder. So science is already hard as it is. And, and fake data just makes it even harder. Now there had to be a moment where, this all started. Um, how did this become a passion for you? What was the first thing that you noticed yeah. that you said, you know, I got to fix this? <laughs> uh, it, it started by reading about plagiarism. And I get asked this question quite some time. So I, I don't remember actually what really started it, but it was a, an article online about plagiarism in science. And, and just you know, after reading that, I thought, let's let's see if my work has been plagiarized. And I took a sentence that I had written in a peer review, uh, in a review paper, and put that sentence between quotes and put that into Google Scholar to see what would show up, only my own article or another article. And I found an, uh, sort of an online white paper that had used my sentence. And... I got very mad because I thought that's my sentence. I, you know, <laughs> somebody stole my sentence. And I, I looked at that paper and it, it was this patchwork of different sentences that all have been written by reputable scientists uh, like me, hopefully. And, 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 and this, the writer of this plagiarized paper just copy pasted lots of sentences and published that as a new paper. It wasn't a peer reviewed article to be honest but it it started my work in in finding these sentences copy pasting them into google google scholar and see what comes up with that and once i started it i just could not stop because i kept on finding sentences that had been plagiarized that's a it's kind of a funny story i was once reviewing a manuscript from uh, some lab and uh, it was a um a lab where the authors were not primarily English speaking uh, folks. And I'm reading this paper and I read this one sentence that just resonated with me. And it really was like, wow, whoever wrote this, that's a, just a great sentence. So I, <laughs> I Googled it. <laughs> I Googled it and it turns out it was my own sentence. <laughs> so beautiful. So gosh, no wonder I like it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but how, 
Yeah, and, and that you bring up a good point. I mean, some of these papers, you, you just see beautiful, you know, very well thought and very complicated, using very complicated words that I, as a, you know, non-native English speaker would never even use. And my English is, you know, not that bad. And then you see these beautiful sentences in between other pieces of text that are just, you know, not very well written English. And so you can recognize that, that, that the style of the article is very, uh, is not very um, continuous. And, and so that is one of the, 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 yeah, the factors that, that will flag these papers as being plagiarized. And yeah, it's a, uh, it's, but I can also sympathize with that as a non-native English speaker. It's, it is really hard to learn how to write in English. And so uh, in the beginning, you, you just copy paste particular phrases and, I've never copy pasted the whole sentence, but you know, things like uh, in accordance or however, like those phrases, you just, you have to copy paste from other articles in the beginning. And that's how you learn how to write in English, but it's, it is hard. It's uh, I can sympathize with, uh, you know, struggling with that and, and using other people's words. No, I can too. But at the, at the bottom line is, is that we have to be extremely careful in terms of mm-hmm. when we, uh, present work as our own, you know, that it really is right. legitimately uh, our own work. Um, I can tell you horror stories about things people have said, you know, when I, when I tell them, Hey, can you give me a skeleton of what you think this, this would look like? Because I don't know the, the scope and the depth that you want it to go into. And they send me a beautiful mm-hmm. answer and I, I retweak it and I fix it and I make it my own. And then just because there's elements that are from a skeleton not published anywhere previously, but just in communication between two people that was obtained by Freedom of Information Act, they uh, raised this up as, you know, uh, evidence of impropriety. And so you have to be Mm. extremely careful when anytime you're um, using non-original words that didn't flow out of your fingertips, it's just the way we have to operate. Yeah, and and I'm very, you know, uh, careful about when I write that if, you know, sometimes you do use somebody else's text as a starter to write your own article about, and, and you have to really immediately mark it be- or either put it between quotes or mark it in some color, like this is not my text. And uh, and and by accident, of course, it can happen that you, in your review paper, that you still have a, a part of a text that was originally by somebody else. And um, that can happen, but the the... the Articles that I found, the papers that I found, had been, you know, eighty or ninety percent of the text. In many cases, had it was not original. It was just taken from another. It wasn't just an accident, a sentence that was left there by accident. It was, you know, the whole article was a Frankenstein monster of other people's texts. <laughs> yeah. How long have but, uh, how long have you been doing this kind of uh, this? Uh, I think I did that for about a year. Um, it was a lot of work, so I. I'm, I'm not a computer programmer um, and I, I, I don't have the capacity to somehow write a program that can take a, a piece of text and automatically do these copy paste searches in Google Scholar. And I don't have access to, you know, the Google API, whatever, whatever that means. That is what people tell me that I should have access to, but I, I cannot automatically automate this process. So I had to do it manually and it was just so much work for one article to have every chunk of text uh, dump into Google Scholar and find the originals. Um, that's, yeah, I, I just gave up on that because I found that I was very good in something else, which was spotting duplicated images. So that was my, my next quest. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, that was the one that I saw um, that really uh, amazed me that you would see the differences you see in these duplicated images. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell me about some of them that maybe were the most egregious offenses? Oh, I've, I've, I've seen many cases, so I cannot really tell you, you know, the most horrible ones. I've seen macroscopy images that are um, also Frankenstein monsters, I guess, of, of cells taken from other photos, and then they're all put together. Or the same cell is visible up to 20 times in the same photo. So it's, it's you know, photoshopping, cloning of, of the same part of an image within that same image. So it would be like looking at a picture of a landscape with clouds and you would see the same clouds five or 10 or 20 times. That is just not possible. In biology, photos are, uh, or elements in photos are not 100% identical to each other. It's one cell is always a little bit different from another cell. Like our faces are all different or clouds are all different. So if you see the same element within a photo multiple times, that is usually not a natural phenomenon. So that's, that's you know, a human copy-pasted that into the same photo. And so I've, I've seen many cases where uh, either protein blots or microscopy photos have been manipulated in that way. And, and yeah, these are fabricated experiments. They didn't take place. They, they, they're completely built up of, of elements of other experiments, but that experiment never took place. So... These are falsified, uh, it's falsified science. And what do you feel is the reason that researchers do this? Do you have any hypothesis for that? Yes, um, there, there's many, many uh, reasons why a researcher would do this. It's mainly, I think it's summarized into like pressure to publish. Like all of all scientists feel the pressure to publish an X amount of papers per year or for their to get their PhD or to get the next postdoc job or to get their uh, an academic position. And in um, yeah, in some cases, uh, the PI of a lab, so the, the, the principal uh, investigator might put so much pressure on a postdoc or a graduate student that they feel the only way to produce results is to cheat. Um, you could argue it's the responsibility of the graduate student to decide to do cheating. But if you're under a tremendous amount of pressure, if your boss is saying, you know, I want, these, I want this PCR to work by Friday, otherwise I'll find another postdoc to do this work. You, you know, you might feel very pressured to falsify results and to produce a blot that never happened. Um, and, and so it's, it's not only the responsibility of the person actually falsifying the data, but the whole climate in that lab, the whole atmosphere, the pressure that a PI might uh, put on, on graduate students and postdocs to produce these results. That, yeah, so it's a combination of those, those things. And the hard part is a PI, and I can tell you from my experience is that, right. especially when you're a collaborator on another paper, like you're on with a group in another, mm -hmm. you know, say another country or something, and they include you in the work right. because you had some sort of role, but you automatically trust the data that are in that paper and that all of the uh, data, the blots, the, well, you know, whatever blots you do these days, mm -hmm. but that all the, all of the data were done with some fidelity and it's really hard to know. It's really hard right. to know. Yes. And, and with, with photographic images at least, so that's, that's what I'm specializing in with photos. You see evidence 
that a blot might have been fabricated. You might see that same band multiple times, or you might see the same figure um, appearing in multiple uh, papers by the same group. So in those cases, you do see evidence that some fabrication had occurred. But if, if you think about things like tables or uh, line graphs or you know, nowadays with genetic information that the amount of data in a paper is so big, the data itself is not even accessible. It's like somewhere hidden on a, on a NCBI, uh, you know, database of, of, of thousands or millions of sequences. And, you know, who downloads these things and really checks, check if they're honest or not. You, we, data sets become so big, you cannot even see that. So while we can see evidence of manipulation in photos, it's much harder to spot these things in non-photographic images. So finding, I, I'm finding misconduct in photos, but I can only imagine what happens in, in line graphs and tables. So I have no idea. And the, the amount of misconduct might be much larger than we estimate just based on, on looking at photos. And that worries me. <laughs> that's, that's just a scary thought. Well, we're talking with Dr. Elizabeth Bick. Uh, she's working on identifying cases of fraud and misconduct inside papers that are published in the peer-reviewed literature. Uh, it's just, you know, <laughs> once again, you know, not all heroes wear capes, right? You're not wearing a cape today, are you? Uh, no, not today. <laughs> this is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. I just hate going to the store. All of these labels, free range, GMO free, certified Chernobyl radiation safe. It's so confusing, especially in the area of food technology. Well, hi, lady shopper. I couldn't help but overhear that you were showing signs of distress about food and farming. Yes, strange guy I don't know. I'm concerned. I don't want biotechnology, synthetic biology, or precision agriculture in my food. Mother Nature gave it all the precision I need. Wow, you seem indeed lost and confused. Why do you feel this way? Well, for years, I've listened to these luminaries, Food Babe, Gwyneth Paltrow, and David Avocado Wolf. But now I wonder, are they for real? Do I need certified GMO-free salt? Does salt even have genetics to modify, random stranger? If only there was a concise book that explained it all with reputable science that I, a person without a science degree, will totally understand. Wait, I need to introduce you to Food 5.0. Food 5.0? Is that, is that gluten-free? Well, sort of. See Food 5.0 is a book called Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future, a new book by Robert Syke. Sounds interesting, random science man. Tell me more. Well, the book is a substantial science-based book looking at modern farming. It's written for everyone, the average person that has concerns or just wants to know more about food or farm technology. From genes in the field to sensors on the farm, it's really a great book. I have a copy right here. Indeed. This looks like a comprehensive work that may challenge my assumptions and answer so many questions. Thank you, random grocery store stranger. No. Thank you for challenging your own pitifully misplaced beliefs. And reach out to Rob or even the Talking Biotech podcast host if you have any questions. Will do. Imagine, there's something other than coffee at the grocery store that will make me feel smarter. 
Find Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future, on Amazon or from wherever you can buy books, if there are such places anymore. And hurry before food activists buy them all and burn them. This is a needed piece of work that has a place in helping people understand what's on their plate and how it got there. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. Today we're talking about detection of scientific misconduct and the extraordinary work that's being done by Dr. Elizabeth Bick. And she has really uh, spearheaded what has become a very strong effort to identify cases of scientific misconduct, mostly by looking at images within papers that uh, seem to be reused, repackages, manipulated, whatever. And the examples that she shows on Twitter are phenomenal. And uh, she's kind of the uh, um, kind of the sheriff of <laughs> peer review land. <laughs> so I guess um, the the thing that comes to mind for me is if you're doing this, you must be stimulating many many retractions. And so, how many do you think you've uh, initiated over your time? Oh, um, I have probably around a hundred or so, but I I would assume many more in the making because I found out that it takes a really, really long time for some journals to respond to, to these cases. And, and that's really where I was hoping to go with this based on our last, right. uh, my last reading of what you were up to is a lot of these are happening in predatory journals. And so when you're finding evidence of misconduct, like the great example was the little baby rats that had tumors, that first the tumors were beyond what should be allowable, which, but, but you would see certain tumors had mm-hmm. a signature, like one looked like a human face and another one looked like a, right, another one looked like a big kind of globular. And if you looked at them, all of them, you could see the same tumors showing up in multiple examples. Uh, which journal was it and how did they respond? So this particular uh, paper was in OncoTarget, and uh, I had some trouble finding the, the email address, but I, I asked him on Twitter, and they were, as, as I do, because I, I love to be on Twitter, and I got an immediate response. They gave me the correct email address to write to, and they, um, and this was only yesterday, so it was really, really fast, um, and they they said they're going to look into this uh, matter. And I believe, I haven't checked, but they told me that the paper has now been marked that it's under investigation. Well, that's excellent. But what, what about so, the majority? Yeah, are the majority great. of these happening in legitimate predatory? Well, you know, it's hard to say what's a legitimate predatory journal. But in these in these, in these <laughs> journals. No, that's actually a contradiction right there, probably. <laughs> in a, well, in a journal which has been tagged, like, say, be all's list of um, predatory right. journals. Can you yeah, repeat the question? Yeah. So Sorry, how I much of this do you think is a problem because of the fact that we have journals which are considered predatory and maybe very low standards for review? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the image duplication is maybe not that big of a problem in those journals, but um, for me, the danger in predatory journals is the um, distribution of what I call extraordinary ideas, extraordinary ideas that are not in line with what most scientists believe. So uh, predatory journals in general do not really do a very thorough peer review, or maybe they don't do any peer review at all. They, by definition, they care mostly about the what the author pays to publish their paper, and they don't really care what is in the paper. But they 
they serve it up as if it were peer-reviewed and, and a real scientific paper. And so if you are a person uh, with, a, with a crazy idea that is completely against what most scientists will will accept, like, I don't know, the earth is flat or uh, vaccines cause autism, most scientists would disagree with that. And it's very hard, obviously, to, to publish that in a scientific paper because peer reviewers are going to you know, disagree with, with what you're finding. But people can use predatory journals to distribute these crazy ideas because the peer review is pretty much non-existent. And so I've seen cases where people with extraordinary ideas can publish their paper and then they cite that paper in yet another paper and they build up this whole repertoire of papers that all appear to be peer-reviewed um, and it's very hard to for the general audience to distinguish a peer-reviewed paper from a predatory paper because it, they look they look the same and yeah a layperson cannot really distinguish these two so it, it might appear that a particular person has peer-reviewed work while in reality it's basically a crazy idea and so this can be misused by people with uh, extra extraordinary claims or even by industry and they and it's it's very very worrisome that and and, and I really hope more scientists care about these things. Uh, I, I do deeply and I know there's a few papers that I've followed over the years that have been that weren't even research papers they were compilations of cherry picked data from different places to mm -hmm. reinforce a given conclusion Okay, so completely backward science, but right. they would publish in a place like one of the best examples is uh, kind of a theoretical physics journal uh, called, um, mm -hmm. I don't even remember the name of the journal now, but it's one of the MDPI journals where this, where this mm -hmm. appeared. And the author then is cited for her outstanding research connecting, um, you know, different agricultural chemicals to autism and, you know, all kinds of other stuff and, mm -hmm. and vaccine uh, papers she does too. And it gives it a patina of legitimacy because it's cited by other people, as you mentioned. Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. It's, it's, it's really of concern and um, a, a scientist might immediately realize, oh, but that, that's a, you know, that is a predatory journal or it's, I'm not going to really care about it. Why, why would I even bother reading it? But, um, yeah, websites that include links to these papers, uh, give it, uh, some authority. Like it, it looks like that person really has published papers and peer reviewed papers and, this can be misused a lot. Now, as we mentioned before, you know, there was this very strong impetus to publish for career advancement and for uh, many other reasons. And in some countries, you know, the, like in China, they incentivize with money, like they financially incentivize yes. uh, publication. Correct. And so these things could mm -hmm. be incentives for kind of bending the edges a little bit. Have you had any personal um, blowback or had any kind of repercussions for blowing the whistle on somebody for their for their uh, misconduct? Um, not as not a lot. I have had um, some people respond to my comments on Papier, which is a site where you can uh, you know give feedback on a paper. And in some cases, when I've published those reviews or concerns under my full name, uh, people have 
obviously not taken that very well. And there was one particular person who uh, published my home address there, and he 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 said that he would uh, send the FBI to me or things like that. Like it was, I I didn't take it that seriously but it's it's really scary when suddenly somebody posts your home address online it's like doxing right like it it's <laughs> my husband was getting worried like oh my god he this this guy is gonna drive to our house and put it on fire or so and you can just imagine that one of these people that i talk about might actually do that and that yeah that gave me pause but um, I, I keep on doing it <laughs> anyway because I feel somebody needs to needs to push back and uh, somebody needs to, uh, you know, in in a polite way, need to call out these people for what they're doing. No, you're you're exactly right. And what you heard from me there was a laugh of empathy because <laughs> I had uh, I, I recently had my bank account number, my full bank account number, oh. my social security number, and my home address put online along with verbiage that I was, you know, had committed a number of uh, things that were borderline criminal and mm -hmm. almost with the idea of, you know, calling out somebody to come fix the problem. Right. And, yeah. you know, and, and you don't think much about it, but then when the dog goes crazy at three in the morning and you're looking for the shotgun shells, you know, <laughs> I mean, seriously, that, I live out in the country. Yeah. If somebody shows up at my place looking to cause trouble, the police are five minutes away at least. So, right. you know, if we got a problem, it's ours to fix. And and we know that. Mm -hmm. But but this is the kind of paranoia that is um, that, that I live with in being a right. scientist who's very vocal about his positions mm -hmm. in defending the truth and defending science. And, right. uh, you know, and you're doing the same thing. And so if I can ever be of service for you... Um, you know, like, I don't know what, but, <laughs> I but, need a lawyer. I probably need a lawyer on speed dial. I usually say, because at some point I might be sued. Like look at what, uh, for example, the New York times, uh, wrote an article about a cancer researcher with, um, a whole track record of pop peer flagged papers with image concerns. And I was interviewed for that piece, uh, only as a, you know, person who as on the sideline as a, as a you know, an expert on, on image duplication. And then, um, but this, this scientist obviously wasn't very happy with uh, the article that the New York times had written about him and he, he sued the New York times and, and they, they won in the end, but uh, yeah, even you can be right, but you could still be sued and uh, that will cost you a lot of money, which the New York times obviously has. They probably have a, a big team of lawyers to put on that. But for me as an individual, it, it might be very hard to fight back and I can be hundred percent right. And it could still lose in court because another person has more money and better lawyers. Well, you're, you're talking to the right guy. I mean, the New York yeah. times wrote an article about me four years ago. That was blatantly <laughs> false. I mean, it would just yeah, yeah. You know, said I was a lobbyist that worked in mm -hmm. DC and took all these trips on behalf of companies. None of it was true. And the author knew it. And uh, I sued him. But, you know, eventually it was just let go because the judge said that, yeah. you know, they have um, uh, enough um, reporters have some latitude and he didn't want to find a finding of um, in the he, as the judge put it in the era of fake news. He couldn't mm -hmm. find a um, libel conclusion against The New York Times. Uh, so, okay. you know, I think the political climate um, of our current presidency and everything has shaped our, uh, our judiciary's de decision as to whether to pursue cases of libel against the modern me major media. 
but mm-hmm. that's a complaint for another day too. I do think, <laughs> yeah. well, I do think we have to have a scientist defense fund. There's no question about that, but I think we need to have a scientist offense fund. So not just enough to sit back and pay for attorneys when people are, uh, when they come after us, like when they come after mm-hmm. you for doing the right thing, but so that would enable us to be able to use the legal system to pursue actively um, these cases. And, mm-hmm. and so this is stuff that I think is, you know, maybe this is a good thing for me and the rest of my career is to try to uh, spend more time protecting those who are going out to tell the truth, the things like you're doing. So, you know, I just wanted to put that bug in your ear that this podcast has a very good reach with people committed to science. And if you ever have a problem, we can at least mention it here and get some momentum to try to get into the larger media, into the news, mm-hmm. and the broader scientific media. So, yeah, that, that would be great. It's, it's something I have been thinking about a lot recently. And, and it's just great to talk to people like you and, and hopefully have uh, more appreciation for the work that not only I do, like there's many people doing this work. I'm, I'm one of the more vocal people who publishes these um, reviews under my full name. But there's many, many others who stay anonymous exactly out of this fear of being you know, getting a personal attack on, on the, these person, on, on, yeah, on the, the whistleblowers and, and it's just a scary work and it prevents a lot of people from coming out and talking about these problems in public. Sure. And and that's a problem across science communication. Um, Scientists are not willing to step into telling the truth because of the repercussions for telling the truth. And you're on a different edge of this. You're correcting the record and a durable record that we need to have in order to progress forward with ease and agility and earn Mm -hmm. public trust as scientists. And you're doing a wonderful job with it. But how could the scientific community in a more broad way help you? And, And how could, is there a way that we could formalize the job you do and maybe expand it into a way where it's fully funded and, um, you know, maybe even brings in a dozen researchers to do nothing but surveil the, the literature. Is there some sort of model you think could work? Um, I, I'm hoping for um, either a national or an international organization that could take on and, and be an independent organization in, in these cases. In many of the cases that I'm finding, the parties that I'm writing to, the institutions or the journals, have too much at stake to really pursue these cases. Um, for example, a I might uh, criticize the work of a person who brings in a lot of grant money to an institution, or yeah, the, the people, the person I'm accusing, I'm accusing of misconduct might be, uh, you know, a department hat, something like that. And so it's it's very difficult for a research integrity officer at an institution to fight against that or and they might actually be told by people higher up to not pursue these cases because there's too many conflicting um, conflicting uh, interests and for a journal it's not always um, uh, or at least it's believed by the journal or by the editors that looking into these cases is very uh, good for the journal because it it might take away trust that people have in that journal if they start retracting papers, and that is actually not comp- not true at all because most people will have more trust in a journal that retracts the the bad apples, but a, a journal might want to care more about their impact factor in the citations than about 
the true science and it might just be a lot of work for an editor who might have uh, another job a full-time job and has to do the editorial work on the side to pursue these cases and so it's there's just so many conflicts of interest here that uh, would hopefully be solved if there was some either national or international institution and the US has uh, the ORI the Office of Research Integrity but it's I don't think the funding is, is, is very high and there's I don't think there's a lot of people still working there um, at least I haven't been impressed with the work they do um, and, and and that is probably because they don't really they're not really backed up by the current uh, government and they uh, they probably have no you know no large staff to pursue these cases well there probably is a good role for um, AI here and that uh, having some sort of a system like you mentioned early programming or you mentioned right. earlier programming, uh, having some sort of program that would parse the literature against itself and scan images against themselves mm -hmm. and being able to, uh, and this could even be so easy to do if everybody loaded their stuff into a common preprint server, for instance, that would mm -hmm. all the work would be done there from a common format, whatever. It's, it's so important to the integrity of what we do that we have to have some sort of built-in check and I'd love to see some sort of system formalized. Yeah, and, and there there are systems for plagiarism. There's there's a, a, a software program that a lot of publishers use to detect plagiarism. And most people who submit their papers to these journals know that their text is going to be screened as part of that. So a system like that, like you just described, is, is exactly already in place for textual similarities. But for image similarities, it's much more difficult and and there are very promising results several people are working on this and i have collaborated uh, with them with my data set but it's a it's it's not there yet it's not out there yet i i hope it will be soon and then hopefully i can you know take on another hobby <laughs> and not do this uh, full-time anymore tell me more about the problem of false affiliations yeah that's something i came across when i searched some papers that had been published in these predatory journals that we, we talked about earlier, I found papers by uh, lone authors usually who claim to work at some institution. But if you look up that institution, I couldn't really find a record of that. And they claim to have done research on you know, interviewing people or doing um, uh, obtaining data from experiments and they had uh, got an institutional review board uh, uh, approval of to do these experiments. But the institution did not seem to exist, or it was just, if you looked at the address, it was just their own home address, or it was a little house in Poland or something like that. So it didn't seem to be a real research institution. And so there's people coming up with these fake affiliations that give the paper a sense of, of authority because it was published by some institution, but the institution didn't exist. So these people are publishing under false affiliations, things that are not true, and they just make it look like it's a real research study. Yeah. But it wasn't. When you find uh, somebody who, <laughs> from the halls of medicine, right? Or the, or the, <laughs> or the Pons Institute or whatever those other ones right. were on, uh, on, uh, on television. But that, the, mm -hmm. that seems to be all part of the same thing. It's all, right. yeah, it's it is, all yeah. fraud. And it, it, how much, how much 
of this if to you is this just a lot of fun or do you get a lot of satisfaction of really uh just identifying and breaking uh the, a misconduct story yeah yes i do that's that's a good question i never really thought about that but but it feels sort of like a hunt and and by that don't get me wrong i'm not hunting for to bring down people because i realize what whatever i'm doing i am damaging someone's careers and not just the person i'm you know, I find misconduct in their papers, but also all the people around them are in the same lab. Um, but to find to find a, a nice image duplication or manipulation, and then marking it and posting it on Twitter, there is there's definitely a thrill in that, and and hoping to see other people respond to that. And and I I hope by posting these things on Twitter, I'm making people aware of the problem because in the beginning, a lot of people had never seen these things, and uh, yeah. Sometimes I try to make it into a game. Like here's a here's a picture. Can you see the duplication? I'll come back in ten minutes, <laughs> and then people start guessing. And sometimes they find things I had not even seen before. And and it's yeah, it just turns then into a game. But in those cases, I do not or I try not to give away which which author it was or which paper. I just make it more about that figure. You know, so ridiculously manipulated. Come on, let's make a let's make a game out of it. But it's um, yeah, in the end, it is important to realize that there's there's real people behind these. And if I report a paper, if if a paper gets retracted, it's it will damage their careers. And and you know, there's been cases in which uh, people who have been reported, not by me, but there have been other cases where people have committed suicide because they had been involved in these cases. And so I I always, even though there's a thrill in finding the photos. There's there's a sad story behind each of these cases, so I've, I try to remember that as much as possible. No, I'm with you. I mean, because part of the problem is it could be that they were genuinely dishonest and tried to be deceptive, mm-hmm. but it also could be that they made a mistake, or that you know they yes. trusted somebody in the laboratory to do the work, and you know mm-hmm. they you know got something reversed. I mean, I I got something reversed once in a grant proposal that completely changed the story, and when I found it, I got cold sweats. And I, con- I contacted the panel manager and I said, you, I have to withdraw the proposal, you know, and, and mm-hmm. I did. Um, yeah. But it was when you, when you realize that sometimes these things do happen and that it does damage mm-hmm. careers and it, and it can really hurt people. Right. So is, is yes. there really merit that if somebody finds a mistake or find, or sh- I shouldn't say a mistake, if somebody finds something that looks fishy, suspect Mm -hmm. is really the best course of action to maybe contact the authors first and say, Hey, I found this. Do you think that you should retract the paper or clarify why it's this way rather than going to the journal itself? Um, yes and no. If you, I think if you know the person, well, if, if, if you're their peer, you maybe have met them at a conference and, or you have an even closer relationship with them, sure, go ahead and, and talk to the author. And, and in many cases, there might be just a mistake. So if it's a what I call a simple duplication or maybe uh, yeah, like a rotation or something like that, that could be an honest mistake. And very often it is. But um, if it's a case where you find the same band visible within the same photo twice or three times, it's very unlikely it's a mistake. And I think in those cases it's probably not a good idea to talk to the author because, um, you know, they're going to disagree with you and they, um, 
it might become even a fight, like a scientific fight. And and in those cases, it's better to to contact the journal and sort of have a third party in between that is a little bit more neutral than trying to contact the, the author. So Dr. Elizabeth Bick, my new hero. <laughs> <laughs> Not wearing a cape, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to make you a cape. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'd love that. Uh, okay, so we, all right, so uh, we we could uh, find start a donation, a GoFundMe for your cape and a uh, uh, legal defense fund. <laughs> but if people wanted to learn more about you or follow you online, where would they look? Uh, so I'm I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Microbiome Digest, but it's Microbiome without the e at the end because I ran out of letters. Twitter. <laughs> did not give me that extra letter that I needed. So I dropped the E after microbiome. Uh, so it's microbiome digest. That's my handle. Uh, or just search for my name, Elizabeth with a S, Bick, B-I-K. Um, I have uh, two blogs that I'm running, uh, or at least I found it. And one of them is now run by a, by a team of volunteers. Uh, that is microbiome with the E, digest.com. And the other one is scienceintegritydigest.com. Awesome. And I'll put those links in the associated website with this particular episode. Well, thank you very much for joining me. This is really, really a great episode. It's, it's been my pleasure, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please write reviews on iTunes. Um, don't just copy and paste somebody else's because <laughs> Elizabeth will bust you on it. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I'm on your case. <laughs> no, thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.